writes to Timothy on how to strengthen the churches of Ephesus. And you'll find in 1 Timothy, and you'll find it again in Titus, by the way, that when a church is being rocked and attacked, then the response is to establish a strong eldership and then to establish strong deacons. And you can, we're not going to go into any length at a time, but the, the, not my, it's not appropriate to teach at any length on eldership, but I believe establishing the right elders in the church is one of the most foundational things that you've got to do. If you get it right, then you're going to see blessing. If you get it wrong, then you've already, you've, you've scheduled the church to blow up sometime or other. And so elders and deacons are the biblical government that God's put in under apostolic or pastoral headship. And you can see how when all this horror of doctrine and weird things started to go on, he said, now Timothy, you established some elders there. And then he gives, in 1 Timothy um, 3, he gives the, the, the requirements of these men and, in, and again in Titus. And then he makes an almost equally demanding requirement for deacons. Amen? And I'll just mention that the only difference between the two lists is that the things that an elder must have that a deacon doesn't necessarily have is the ability to teach and I don't think that means getting up and publicly preaching. I mean that in any kind of dealing with people, you bring them to the bar of Scripture and say, look, don't argue with me about my opinion. Look, look at the Word. And you're, you're, the right way to pastor people is to bring them up to let the Word confront them. Amen? They say, well, your argument's with God, not with me. I didn't write the Bible. I'm just pointing out to you what it says. And and so they have to be able, in that sense, I believe, to teach. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're good preachers. And the second thing that they have to do is to be able to, and it says this in Titus, they're able to, um, let me just go to the verse, come to Titus chapter 1, and just pick it out for you. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through, and it's verse 9, I want. This is their job, is to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught. Now it's the elder who's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to in exhort and to convict those who contradict. So he's to uphold or maintain the sound doctrine that he's been taught. So then comes the question then, who teaches the elders? Very quiet. Yeah, what do they devote themselves to in the early church? The apostles' teaching. So if you haven't got apostles inputting your church, you've got elders that can go off in all kinds of directions. And uh, they and the whole flock can go off into error. So and now you'll find that if you get under apostolic teaching, what, what are genuine apostles, I'm not talking about control, controlling people who make out their apostles, but if you get under real apostles, they'll always stretch you to think bigger and think wider and to be, if you like, more receptive to the whole truth of God. They don't narrow you down to a particular point of view of doctrine. Amen? 
And so that's one great reason why you need apostolic input is that you, you need elders who've been taught sound doctrine and know how to uphold it. Otherwise you'll be caught in a sea. Well, I, so that was how Paul said, and then Titus, Titus, strengthen what remains, appoint elders. You can see that's again and again. Uh, as I have been called into many desperately needed church situations, uh, uh, what's so absolutely foundational is the ability to appoint sound doctor, to appoint great elders. And in the deacons, their ministry is to serve in a task, but their character requirements are just the same. If you go through the list of elder requirements in 1 Timothy 3, you'll find that of the 16 requirements, 15 of them are character requirements. If you go through the list in Titus, you'll find that of, I think it's 17 there, you'll find that once again, I think it is, is that 15 of them are character requirements. And, uh, and I've learned to my cost that if you overlook one of them and say, well, you know, he's, he's pretty good except that he's, his finances are in a mess and he's, he's in debt and, well, uh, we'll work on that. I've always done that to my regret. And he's got to be an example in all things. Amen? And so we have to look into, and I've got, actually got a list of 22 things that I look at when I'm being given the responsibility to discern, because it's the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is appointing as elders. So I'm just going to say that because it's too important to miss, but, but if you're going to establish churches which are going to stand the kind of warfare which comes when you become city-taking churches, you need an absolute solid base elders. They need, know, they need to know how to honour the head of the house that God's appointed. And, they need, and I've got lots and lots and lots of teaching on this because it's such an important foundation. Alright? So I just wanted to say that. Now we'll move on if we may, come back with me to um, to page 17 and we're going to now just begin in the letter to the Ephesians. So just go to the Ephesian letter and we shall be in these pages for the next couple of days now. So we turn to chapter 1 and let, let me say this, that, that many Christians are trying to live in Ephesians 6 when they've not gone through Ephesians 1 through 5. And that's why there are so many casualties, or one reason why there are so many casualties. Because this is the groundwork, and, and when the Apostle Paul was anointed by God to write this letter, he was writing to a church under tremendous attack, but had a commission to take a city and to deal with one of the largest and most powerful demonic principalities that's ever had authority on the earth. So, it really, we need to take it seriously. And that we need to see where it begins and how it progresses. So let's start then, Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to read the first three verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's not just a flower introduction. I think, I think I could preach for an hour on each word. Let's start with this word, Paul and Apostle. Or let's expand it to Paul 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Because we may have had excuse in earlier generations, we could have been forgiven for not understanding clearly the role of apostles, but we haven't got that excuse anymore now. And what I find so distressing is that even when people have seen the truth, they're not prepared, if you like, to pay the price of the truth. And there's a, a while all my being cries out for a unified body, you must not produce unity at the lowest common denominator. Because that totally paralyzes you from doing anything. If, if unity becomes your God over truth and the will of God, then you will never get anywhere. And what you find again and again in churches or, you know, and in cities is a group of pastors will come together at the lowest common denominator and they will be absolutely egalitarian. You know that word egalitarian? There'll be absolute equality. No one's allowed to lead. No one's recognized as the leader. And you sort of fuss around for sometimes years going nowhere because we've not recognized that things only go somewhere when they're apostolically led. And I say that absolutely uncompromisingly. That I don't believe any, any city is going to be touched anywhere because we've now had the revelation unless it's a coming together of leaders that recognise and receive apostolic leadership. And Paul's quite upfront about it. He doesn't call himself a bishop because they'd understand it more easily. He calls himself what he knows biblically is, which is an apostle. And I and I want to I want to I believe I'm 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 called by God to contend for that title. And I'm not going to fudge that issue at all because it's it's to the and, and of course they've got to work in right relationship to prophets. And one of the weird things that's going on in America right now is that the prophetic ministry in certain circles has been so exalted that they are now pontificating on who and who are not apostles, which is all round the wrong way. And I've heard some pretty famous names, which I won't mention, having very large conferences, which I won't say where they were. <laughs> but they've come to the conclusion, so this learned paper says that while we believe in the apostolic, we don't find any present-day apostles, therefore we can't submit to them. That's, that's literally the conclusion they came to. And I thought, well, I would use a good old Texan phrase, you dishonest dog. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a wriggle if ever I heard one, amen? But if we get the apostolic prophetic partnership together, which is a, 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 a recurring theme in the letter to the Ephesians, as you will see, then I believe we're on the road to city taking. So Paul's not, as he writes, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And you know, he says, at the same time, how humble I am, which, he, which it's interesting he could show that. He does. And, and uh, because true humility isn't isn't self-effacement. True humility is the denial of self in order to fulfill the purposes of God. Now that's the heart of, utility, uh, of humility, just as pride is the exaltation of self against the will of God. So humility and, and pride have to be measured against the, the criteria of our relationship to God.
Moses, we're told, was the meekest man on the face of the earth, and yet he was a very powerful, strong leader, and he's used, even in the New Testament, as a type and shadow of the apostolic ministry which is yet to come. Amen? So there's a model of what, what it looks like. He's it, not afraid to be zealous for the will of God, but he's totally self-denying when it comes to his own will. And that's what marks out um, through humility. So he's an apostle by the will of God, and he's writing to the saints. Again, the word saints, you know perfectly well what that word means. It means set apart for exclusively for a particular use. That's what it means to be sanctified. It's not sort of looking like one of these religious stained glass window pictures, you know, Saint Vincent with a halo around my head. It's nothing. It's a decision. That's why the Bible, because the word saint or sanctified, it's the same Greek word as we translate holy. I'm sure you know that. So if you're called to be holy, you're called to be sanctified. If you're sanctified, you are holy. And the word literally means set apart exclusively for a particular use. And of course, in the biblical context, that's always for the use of God. And we're commanded to be holy. The Lord says, be holy, for I'm holy. And we're not so much emphasizing, if you like, the, the glorious character of God, because it is sanctification, or the decision to be sanctified. Let me rephrase that. It's the decision to be sanctified which produces the character which we call sanctification or holiness. Um, heaven, the heart of the kingdom is this. It's God's will being done. We're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, your will be done on earth the way it is in heaven. Now that's what defines the kingdom. It's where God's will is perfectly done. And as you, I'm sure, know, it's called either the kingdom of God or it's called the kingdom of heaven, right, throughout scripture. And for years I pondered that and tried to find out what the difference was and I decided there isn't any difference. They're just two dimensions of the same thing, really. In the kingdom of God we're emphasizing that we are submitted to God's rule. Heaven is what's produced because God is perfectly obeyed. Did you hear me say that? So if we perfectly obey God, the automatic result is heaven. And it's impossible to have heaven without God being perfectly obeyed. Did you hear me say that? The moment God ceases to be obeyed, heaven disappears and hell comes in its place. Now that's the difference between heaven and hell. It's how much and to what degree the will of God is done. So I think some Christians are going to have a problem. They want to go to heaven and yet they do not want to live the only way you can live in heaven, which is in perfect, total obedience to God. And when we start to practice that on earth, heaven comes. That's how heaven comes to earth. It comes, first of all, in an individual. And that's why Jesus was, if you like, the, the, he was like a, a capsule of heaven on earth because of his perfect obedience. That's what made him so heavenly. Amen? So the commandment to be holy is nothing more than saying become a perfect kingdom person by your obedience. The two are two ways of saying the same thing. This is a decision that you can make. You can say, Lord, I choose from now on to only be available to you and to only do your will. Now that's the decision 
of becoming holy. And it's a bit like power-assisted steering. You get in a Mack truck, uh, say imagine a, one of these delightfully um, feminine ladies here who have not built their muscles up to try and imitate Tarzan, but they're just not, they're perfectly happy to be all the beauty and glory of true feminism. But when they get into a, a Mack truck, say, the amazing thing is that they get hold of that steering wheel and they just, with one finger, they can turn the steering wheel and these enormous wheels move. And you think, my, she must be bionic woman. No, she's not bionic woman. What's happening is that there is a power mechanism operating that allows just the touch of her finger to be expressed in a powerful moving of those wheels to go in the right direction. Now that, to me, that's a pretty good picture of what happens when you decide to be holy. Because our job is to put our finger on the steering wheel of our life and say, I want to go in this direction. Once we make that choice, all the power of God closes around that choice to make it possible. So we're actually made holy by the power of God, but we're also made holy by our decision to want to be holy. And the two flow together. And it says this basically in in Philippians 2, where it tells us there, in verses 12 through 14, it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God that works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's the max steering. So I'm sanctified by the power of God, but I'm sanctified because I chose to be, because I made the decision to be. So it's my will, if you like, is then closed around with all the power of God to ratify that decision. So when I'm called to be saints, or when I declare I am a saint, I'm saying I've made this decision. I'm exclusively and entirely for God's use upon earth, and I have only one passion and only one ambition, that's to do his will. Now that's, that's, sanctifi- that's, that's entire sanctification. Now the fruit of that decision is, is a flowing out of a quality of life which has all the fruit of the Spirit, all the loveliness of holiness, comes because of the decision to be holy. Amen? Now many people try and counterfeit the fruit rather than dig into the root which automatically produces the fruit. Amen? So you're trying to produce plastic pears and apples when what you need to do is to plant the real fruit and they come automatically. Amen? The fruit of the Spirit is, you know, it's just automatic. And and when we become joined to Jesus, it says in Romans chapter 4, when we become married to Christ, then the fruit of the relationship is all the loveliness of Christ. Amen? So I concentrate on the relationship, and and it's, it's like John 15 being grafted into the vine, and then the sap of the vine produces the fruit. It's it's the grafting which produces the fruit. No branch by itself can produce fruit. Amen? Cut off from the vine, you can't produce anything. So it's total Christ dependence. And yet at the same time, it's that choice to live that way which produces the fruitfulness. And we need to unashamedly teach these things. And of course, before we teach them, we better be a pretty good example of what we're teaching. Amen. We're all on the road. The Apostle Paul said, well, I'm still grasping that for which I was grasped by Christ. I haven't got there yet. But my passion is not to be the most well-known ministry in the church. My passion is to know the power of his resurrection 
having, made, be, having been made conformable to, to his death. That's my passion. So I, I haven't grabbed it yet, not fully, but I'm grabbing hold of that for which I was grabbed hold of by Christ. He's not ashamed in all his letters to say, you follow me as I follow Christ. To me it's a bit like being on a long journey, like take the I-35, take the I which starts off in the Gulf of Mexico, goes right up to the Canadian border. It goes through San Antonio, goes through Austin, it goes through Kansas City, and I don't have much clue where it goes after that, but it goes on right up to the Canadian border. And I could start right, right down on the Gulf of Mexico, and I could have successfully negotiated the journey, say, as far as Kansas City. If I've done that journey, then I can help other people to get to where I am. Amen? But if I've never done that journey, I'm in no position to help them. And so I say, right, you can follow me, because I've already, I know how to, how to get to Kansas City, but by the time I get to Kansas City, I'll be on my way up to wherever the next major town is. You tell me, I can't remember. But if I stay where I am, then everybody's going to go past me. Amen? So I've got, to be, I've got to be on a road myself which leads to the perfection of Christ. I know it's an attainable goal. I know the end of the road really is there. It doesn't end up in mist in the heavens. It's a reality. And I'm on my way there and, and God knows, I can tell you, I'm a lot different now than I was even ten years ago. I'm much further along the road but I haven't, quite got, I haven't got there yet. And I can say to many young men, well, I was like that 20 years ago so I don't condemn you. I was like that 40 years ago, I don't condemn you, but I tell you, you need God to deal with this and this in your life. And I can speak from experience, because it's, it's happened to me, it doesn't trouble me anymore. It's, it's a done deal. Amen? So that's, that's the role that we have. Called to be saints, and he writes to the saints who are at Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. And Paul tells us a number of times that, that God put Paul into the ministry for what reason? 1 Timothy chapter 1 I think it's verse 12 God put me into the ministry Wait a minute I'm in 2 Timothy No wonder I can't find it They're, they're very similar Verse 12, oh, that's right, 1 Timothy 1.12, I was actually right. Long. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enables, who has enabled me because he counted me what? Faithful, putting me in the ministry. Now these little words that appear in the beginning here are not just a flowery greeting, each one of them is a, is a powerhouse for ourselves and for all those that we teach when we see it. Amen? I better move on because I said I could spend an hour on each one. Now I come to verse 2. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never find Paul starts a letter without this exhortation or this, this desire. Grace and peace. He frequently says grace and peace be multiplied to you. In some of his letters he says grace, peace and mercy be multiplied to you. He often ends his letter with grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter does the same thing. They first of all talk about faith, then they talk about grace and peace. And then at the end of his letter, Peter says, Grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, 
again, this is not really my subject, but that, that you and I, we've got to have a real understanding of what grace is. It's banded around in the evangelical world as a, as a word of salvation, which it certainly is. But I want to tell you that 98% of the power of grace comes after we clearly know that we're saved by grace. Most Christians are living on the 2% and have never really entered into the remaining 98%. Uh, and now, the power of the early church, we're told in Acts 2.33, was that everyone in the church was full of grace. That's what it says. It says that, but... Um, great grace, it says, was upon them all. It's not my subject, I'm not going to get into that. All I want to do is to give you as, as, as brief a definition as I can. Um, grace is this. It's all that God is in character and person. It's all that God is in attributes and character. Perhaps that's the best word. Well, I'm not sure that's such a good definition. How do you define an infinite God? But all that God is and all that God has in terms of resources it's made available to us as a free gift through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the best way I can put grace down for you. It's like as if God took a great treasure house, put all all the vast resources of himself and all the vast resources of what he has created. And then he said, right, there's the treasure house of grace. And he says, now here's the key. It's called faith. Now go and help yourself to whatever you want. Amen? And the tragedy is most Christians don't. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, we're told that the power of the life of Jesus in his humanity was the power of grace we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the life that Jesus lived in his humanity was the perfect example of what grace-filled humanity looks like. Because all the time he lived on earth as a man, for the sake of righteousness, he never once drew on the power of his own deity. He drew on the resources of his Father through the... Uh, um, channel of grace. All he needed from God to live his amazing human life, he drew by the, what the Bible calls grace. And so what we see in Jesus is the fullness of grace manifested in human life. Then verse 16 of John 1 says this, it's the most amazing statement, and of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Now that's an incredible statement, isn't it? So what we're being told is that all the fullness of grace that Jesus knew how to access, and it was that access of grace that made his life so amazing, the same deposit is deposited in our spiritual bank account, if only we would believe it. Now I'm saying this because really the thrust of that first chapter of Ephesians is Paul saying the same thing, he's saying the same thing, because we go on to verse 3 and he says this, he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, everything you could possibly need or want, it's already credited to your bank account, but the bank account's in heaven. 
And the problem with Christians is not the problem of supply, it's the problem of access. And I use this illustration again and again because I'm afraid I can't think of a better one. So if you've heard me do this ten times, forgive me. (laughs) But I don't know a better way of getting this across to people. And and this is what I want to say. I want you to imagine Miles Sweeney here. The Reverend Miles Sweeney from Wharton, Texas. He once said to me, there was a time in his life when uh, the best view of Wharton was in the rear view of a mirror when you're leaving town. But God, God called him and located him and now he's, he's transforming that small town of Wharton and I believe it's gonna, a model for many of us to copy as to how you change a small town in Texas. And uh, dear Simon's doing a similar thing in Lufkin. So all over Texas we're beginning to see the fruit of what we're talking about. So just imagine Miles gets a letter when he gets back home and it's arrest to the to the Reverend Miles Sweeney, and it's got a Swiss postage stamp on it. It's come from Bank Swiss in Switzerland. And it says, "Dear Reverend Sweeney, we've had some difficulty tracing you, but uh, we're now satisfied that you're the right person. We're happy to inform you that uh, a relative of yours, whom you were probably not aware of, has recently died, and he's left." 937 million US dollars in this Swiss bank account and in his will the entire fortune is to be given to his nearest surviving relative. We're happy to inform you that we are now satisfied that you are that person. So we're just writing to inform you that in this Swiss bank account is 937 million US dollars and we are awaiting your instructions. Now, as I say often, that could be prophetic. <laughs> now imagine Miles getting this letter, it's absolutely genuine. And then he turns to Sally, his wife, and says, Sally, see this letter? I've got 937 million US dollars in this Swiss bank account. But here's my problem. I've no idea how to access the Swiss bank account. So he takes the letter, drops it in the trash and says to his wife we're just going to have to manage on our salary now would you not say the guy was nuts would he believe would he behave like that no what's he going to do he's going to do every means he can he wouldn't rest until he found out how to access that bank account amen well I'm telling you the bible what's more important is the bible is telling you and me that the vast resources of grace are already deposited in our heavenly bank account. What we've got to learn to do is how to access them. Amen? And what we've got to do as leaders is by our accessing them, we'll encourage other people to go and access, because each of us has got the same deposit. Amen? Draw on it richly. The more you draw on it, the more you will encourage other people to go and get it. Now I don't expect you or even myself to go from my present level of financial management to managing that sort of money. If I got a check tomorrow for, a, let's make it easier for say a, a, a billion dollars. Now the interest on a billion dollars 
conservatively invested very would mean that you've got something like between three and five million dollars a week to spend. Now how many, how many of you would know how to spend that much money? But wouldn't you like to learn to try? <laughs> I'd say I'd be a quick learner. But to go from spending maybe you know a few hundred dollars a week to suddenly start administering several million dollars a week, I, I'd, have to, I'd have to make some leaps of, of wisdom and of organization and of faith. But I tell you, I'd be a quick learner. And all I'm saying today is that let this message strike into your heart for yourself and for your church and say, right, we're going to go. That's why, that's why what John 1, 16 ends the way it does. It goes from grace to grace. It expects you to make progress. And I've determined that by this time, next month, I want to be more into grace than I am this time this month. And this time next year, I want to be a lot further down the line. And I've got a whole set of tapes out there. Again, I'm not trying to sell tapes, but uh, I, want, I want the truth to come to you. And there's a set of tapes called The Power of a Grace-Filled Church, which, which describes this in much more detail. And then it goes on to say, describe carefully at least seven ways how the power of grace can begin to work in your life and then it gives about five or six ways as to why we come short of the grace of God. And if you can get a, a, a grace-filled church, if you can get all your congregation working and moving in the power of great grace, then you've got a city-taking church. You really have. So this is not just a word of greeting, there's a tremendous theological, biblical treasure behind that word, which I want you to get into. And and I we may I think there's one of the tapes, is there one of the tapes that just gives you a taste of that? I think it I think it's the first tape of, of that set of six tapes. You've got that as a free gift. Um, and, and 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 if you lift, listen to that it might give you a taste to get the whole set and listen to the whole revelation. Then there's this word peace. And again, it's, this is the word that brings about the kind of reconciliation that brings about true unity. And again, it, I haven't time to deal with it this afternoon except to say it's a very powerful word. But the, the Greek word, Irene, which is the word for peace, and the Hebrew word, Shiloh or Shalom, which is the, the two Hebrew words for peace, they've got a much richer, deeper meaning than the English word for peace. The English word for peace is pretty, pretty anemic. And, and to get the full treasure of the original word, you've got to go back to the original languages to get the flavor. And, and both of them are quite similar. Let me try and give you a quick definition. Here's um, Martin, ever heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? Well, he, I think he wrote five pages of his great commentary on Ephesians, just on this word peace. And that's where I got, the, he, did, he didn't get some of the revelations that I've got, but he, he had some that I didn't have. That's why it's good to enrich each other. But, but he said, if you want to get a good sense of the, of the Bible word peace, he said, I want you to imagine two heavily armed men hating each other and they're, they're hell-bent on killing each other. And then they come to the place where they stop the war and lay down their arms. He said, you have not yet come to Bible peace. 
All you've come to is the end of hostility. To come to Bible peace, it will be necessary for both these men not only to lay down their arms, but to fall into each other's arms and develop a genuine love for one another and to become perfectly reconciled. Only then have you come to Bible peace. So Bible peace, actually the word peace has is, is got, got a relational root to the meaning. And here's the best definition that I think I can give you. It's the complete mending of a relationship which was formerly hostile. It's not enough to end the war, you've got to mend the relationship. It's the complete mending of a relationship which was formerly hostile. And I'll give you one little, little bit of a nugget which I discovered in my research, and that is that the word Irene is used in the, was used in the medical profession at the time that the Bible was written. And it was used in this sense that when a bone fractured and the broken parts of the bone came back together, calcified over, and after that calcification had become hard and strong, a properly healed bone after a fracture is now stronger at the point of fracture than any other part in the bone. It's very, very unusual. In fact, it's almost impossible for the bone to break again at the same place because that's now the thickest and strongest part of the bone. When it's completely mended and completely healed, the fracture actually has made the bone stronger. When that, that strength of complete healing comes back to the bone after being broken, they would say in the uh, Greek language, in the medical profession, the bone has now come to peace. That's what they would say. They use the same word, Irene. In other words, that bone is never going to be broken there again. And what I want you to see is this, that, that when God and Adam walked in the garden, they walked in the, in the garden in innocence. Amen? Adam rebelled against God, went off into sin, and there became great enmity and great hostility between them. We're told all this in the scripture. But God didn't wait for man, God came in the person of Jesus Christ and died on a cross to mend the relationship. His primary purpose was not to save us from hell, his primary purpose was to mend the relationship. And God isn't content with having remote saved sinners, can you hear me? He wants, uh, he wants sons and daughters who will leap into his, his arms and be totally and completely reconciled. Now here's the wonder of you see, that's, that, that's what we're told in Colossians 1.20 when it says that God made peace through the blood of his cross. And we read, and we'll see it later on in the Ephesian letter, how powerfully peace works to bring us together in unity. Peacemaking is one of the most gloriously God-given things. And that's why it says in Matthew 5.9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the grown-up mature sons of God. Now, peacemaking is a powerful, divine thing, but it's, it's, it's absolutely glorious in God's sight. Now, Adam, after he had sinned, the relationship between him and God was fractured. It was like a broken bone. But in the cross, Jesus brought the broken parts together and so perfectly mended them that my relationship to God through grace is now unbreakable. Amen? Can you hear me say that? So now I'm walking with God in a relationship which is much stronger than Adam walked with God before he sinned. Because Adam had a relationship of innocence. 
I've got a relationship of unbreakable grace, hallelujah. And nothing can separate me from the love of God. Now, if you start to apply that, for example, racially, think about this. You see, supposing white people had never done anything horrible to, to black folks. Supposing we'd, we'd never had that sort of ghastly background which we have in the United States. Some terrible things that make me deeply ashamed when I you know, begin to study the history of this nation and I think, dear God. But here's the point. If we'd never done anything wrong, we'd managed to walk together in the same nation in, in the relationship of innocence, then something might have happened down the road that could have broken the relationship. But if having had the most awful break of relationship, the most wicked and evil things that have been done, causing in the natural that there never can be a mending of this thing, if they now come together in the power of grace, can you see now that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a more glorious relationship that's more unbreakable? So in a way, to have been broken and been put back together makes it more powerful than if we have never been separated by evil activity on either or both sides. Can you hear what I'm saying here? Now that's where God's wanting to take us here. It's not enough to end the war. That's not biblical peace. We've got to fall into each other's arms and absolutely love each other and be totally reconciled. Then we've got Bible peace. And when the Hispanics and the African Americans and the Caucasians achieve that, plus all the delightfully different diverse Asians that are now coming, if we can accomplish that, we've got something much more powerful than never having done any harm to each other. Can you hear what I'm saying? Does that make sense to you? And that's where I believe we're heading. And, and I'm going to give my life joyfully to be a peacemaker in this respect. And I want you to see, as we will see later on in the Ephesian letter, that this is an absolutely vital part of preparation for city taking. We're never going to take a city in our ethnic diversities, even if we don't fight each other anymore, but we just live in sort of tolerant isolation. That, that's not, not at all enough in the sight of God. Amen? Yeah. Right, let's move on from there. Well, that's the introduction. <laughs> it tells us in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, literally already blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a, there's a tense there. It's the past perfect tense, which means it's a completed Thing. It's a little bit similar to the hours, but slightly different. It's a sort of a, a past event that has a continuing effect right up to this present time. So the event is history, but the consequence of the event is very present now reality and will go on continuously to the future. Does that make sense to you? So there's an, it is a vast treasure in heaven that was deposited to my account in the past but it's there, right now, and I can have free access to it. Then you go on into the next few verses, and you'll find some tremendous words. We're told in verse 4, He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, 
Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins according to the riches of grace. And so we could go on with, a tr- and, and you probably notice in verse 17, I've pulled out some of these great words of, of, which are deposited in our bank account. This word, election, and this word, election, is very similar to the word, the Greek word, which is, which is to electio. It means, well, what it means is this. If you can imagine, say, that's mine, I'll have it. Now, that's the idea behind his word. So, God's looked at all of society, all the, the billions of people, and he said, yeah, I'll have Alan Vincent. That's what God did to me. And I don't know why. It wasn't because I'm nice. In fact, God says of the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, He said, I've set my love upon you because I've decided to love you. Although you are a stiff necked, rebellious people. There's nothing nice about you, but I've decided to love you. And having decided, it's impossible to reverse that decision. Amen? Yeah, these are great words. And, and you know, I, I did a, when I was in Bombay, I used to train a lot of leaders and I used to do a Bible study. And one of my favorite um, courses was to do great words of Scripture. And I'd take all these words and probably spend a morning on each one of them. And I'd tell you, you know, grace and peace and election and, and, and these words that we bandy around and yet we really don't know what they mean. But if you, if you get soaked into the richnesses of all these words, it, it just it blows you away with the incredible, amazing goodness of God. Why should he decide to love me? I don't know. Why should he set his love upon me? I can't explain that. But I know it's a fact. I know it's a fact. And I've got such incredible evidence in my life. I've told many of you this story, and I'm not going to repeat it this afternoon, but... But, all, but God had already planned. He'd marked out a piece of land for my house to be built on in 1957 and put it into the heart of a man in San Antonio to give it to me in 1990. And so when he called me in 1990, he said, God's told me that you're the man that I've been waiting for for 33 years. And I've got this two-acre plot of land which I'm going to give to you and I'm going to build you a house. That's how God greeted me in my coming to America. So I was given a two-acre piece of land and some of you, if you want to come out on a pilgrimage, it's only $10 a tour around this miracle house and we'll show you this miracle house which God provided for me before I ever came to America. But here's the interesting thing. 1997, when those words were spoken to this man by his mother, I wasn't even saved. And in 1997, before I was saved, God was planning for me to come to America in 1990 to come to live in San Antonio to a certain place. Now that blows me away. But it gives intense security to me that I'm actually, I'm, I'm part of his eternal plan. I'm, I'm, I'm foreordained before the foundation of the world. He, he's ordained good works that I should walk in them. Now, some of us may have been told by our parents, I didn't want you, but I tell you, God did. And God planned it all. In fact, you are so important to him, and I'm so important to him, and somehow we've got to get this truth through to the church. That, that you were part of his eternal plan and in his spirit, long before he created the world, he had created you as part of his eternal plan. He decided when you were going to be born 
where you were going to be born, through whom you were going to be born, when he was going to call you to salvation, and then what you were going to do once he'd saved you. Now that is absolutely mind-blowing. Now, I'm laboring these things because I want you to see that, that, that these... See, this is how Paul begins the letter on city-taking. Because he's got to get into the people that are going to be this city-taking community, this, this sense of destiny, this sense of, of uniqueness, this sense of importance, this sense of, of divine election, of divine planning before the foundation of the world. I mean, you're more important to God than, 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 and, and his plan for you than the moon and the stars and all these vast universes. And it's so absolutely incredible, but if you let, let the Spirit of God teach you, and you sit there in dumb amazement, and you think, Lord, um, and, and your worth and your value and your purpose and, and, and in a totally new way you become aware that you're called to literally be a worker together with God. And here's the other thing which we will just close with. That when God made you uniquely like nobody else exactly then he broke the mould and said I'll never make another one like them. And so in the infinity of God, there's a, a part of God that I was created to please that no one else can please. You know, some of you have got quite a few children. Some of you know that every child, it's amazing how different children from the same parents can be. And how every one of them gives you pleasure like the other one can't. And yet each one of you gives you amazing pleasure. They're all fantastic, they're all unique, they're all wonderful. And to say, well, you couldn't say, oh, well, I've got 13 kids, so if one dies, it doesn't matter. You can't talk like that about precious children. Now, in the infinity of God, he, he's the same on a much, much greater scale. There's something in God that's aching for Alan Vincent, and was and always will, and, and, and I will gladden him in a way that nobody else can. And when we, when we, all, when we see all these things, then all insecurities and, and you know, the competitiveness that comes out of insecurity, unworthinesses and fears and all these things, they're, they're swept away in the power and the glory of our divine election. Now let's read through this list and then we're going to close this session. It's, it's run away, isn't it amazing? I just feel I'm just getting going. So these, all these words are here in this first chapter and I'm going to give it to you maybe for homework to go through every word, the word election, the word acceptance, forgiveness, redemption, holiness, which we've already touched on, blamelessness, wisdom, adoption, family, sonship, I think there's a tape on sonship, isn't there, in that set of tapes? Give you some idea what it really means to be God's son. And then, inheritance and citizenship. And then the last word is rule and authority with him on his throne. Well, we're going to go into that because that is developed much more in the next uh, passages. Now, if we can get that to be... What's the word? I mean, to be eternally uh, alive in us. Like, like, it's, like, it's like a glowing 
truth that never ever dims. The thing that always thrills me about, do you know Reinhard Bonnke? You know him, this great evangelist. Well, I've been with him a number of times. and I tell you, the thing about Reinhard that absolutely thrills me is his boyish delight when someone gets saved. It's incredible. He just, I'm privileged to be on one of, one of, the, one of his, the, the email where he sends out to a few key people and he just pours his heart out on what's happening. And what's happening in Nigeria is absolutely incredible. You know, I think it was 3.6 million people got saved in his last crusade. Something incredible is happening in Nigeria right now. Most of them will be Muslims. And yet, I, I mean, I got on a plane once in Nairobi and he... He, he was already on the plane. He'd been doing a crusade in Dar es Salaam and we got on the same plane and flew to London and we were able to talk. And he'd been, he'd been through this absolutely um, demanding great crusade but, and, and, and his um, main administrator was fast asleep in his chair. But he, he was on fire. He said, Allah, and he was talking like that. I tell you, by the end of that journey, I, I was glowing with the impartation of this man. But, but I've watched him, and I've seen him. When someone gets healed, it's like the first time he's ever seen it. And when someone gets saved, it's like, as if he's never seen it happen before. There's, there's sort of a, a, I don't know how to describe it, there's, a, there's an eternally fresh excitement. And that's what makes him, I believe, one of his great qualities that makes him a fantastic man of God. And, and I believe these words have got to be like this in us. You know, that there's, there's an eternal fire of thanksgiving, there's an eternal fire of passion. There's, you know, these words are not just theological concepts, but they're, you know, they're, they're alive in us to the glory of God. Now, you produce people like that, and you'll never have dull meetings. <laughs> you'll never have flat praise. You just can't have these things. When you have a prayer meeting, what they are is going to go out of them. So this is how the Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, chose to prepare this great treatise on city-taking. And we mustn't just pass that page, hey, well, I want to get to the methodology. The methodology is people. People with the right fire in them are city-taking. Even if they do everything wrong, they're still city-taking. It's good to have the right methodology, but that is far more... Um, overcome it, far more easily overcome than having things which are wrong with the people. Amen? Let's close with just prayer. Come on, let's pray. And let's, I mean, let's ask God. God, it's so difficult to get into words, this passion that's burning in me by your spirit. And I pray that as we've sat and listened, even at this worst of all sessions, the session after lunch, that somehow the fire of this will get into us in Jesus' name. And we pray, Lord, that we'll never ever get tired or, or, or used to these incredible truths. Foreordained before the foundation of the world. I'm the elect of God. I'm, I've got this unsearchable treasure. I'm, I'm reconciled. I'm, oh God, let the, this almighty God who flung the stars into space he was willing to come to a cross and die in order to make peace with me. What an incredible thing. He set his love upon me. And he who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also through him freely give us all things? 
We pray the excitement of these things will, will be rekindled into a, an unquenchable fire. That we will be not only like a torch glowing with the glory of these things, but Lord, we'll be like, we'll be like a, a gas poker that sets everything else aflame that comes anywhere near it, Lord. We, we pray we'll pass the fire on until, Lord, we're privileged to lead highly combustible people who are absolutely on fire for God and they set alight anything that they touch. In Jesus' mighty and wonderful name. Amen, amen.